Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Erlang OTP 25.2 is the second maintenance patch package for OTP 25 with mostly bug fixes as well as improvements. We'll drop a link to the notes if you're interested. All right, next up, uh, Hugging Face has announced a new feature called Spaces. It's a feature that lets people run Docker images on Hugging Face. It's kind of cool. Reminds me a little bit of hubs.docker.com. With this, Elixir Phoenix has specifically shown up as an example, along with uh, some other tools. So it's kind of cool to see Elixir and Phoenix up there on Hugging Face, you know, this other community that's not, <laughs> that's not you know, about Elixir. So uh, it's pretty cool. Jose mentioned this in our interview uh, last week about being exciting because it puts Elixir and Phoenix in front of non-Elixir, you know, ML people. So I'm, I'm excited too. It's cool. I love seeing it pop up in other, other communities. Another item is that Sean Moriarty added a new feature to NX's Stable Diffusion support, and this is adding support for negative prompts. Stable Diffusion was one of the very first things that was added for Axon, and when I asked Sean online, hey, can this be made to do negative prompts? He's, he looked into it and said, oh yeah, that won't be hard at all, and he created a PR for it, and now that's something that's added to stable diffusion support in Elixir, which is really cool. So a negative prompt, if you're not familiar with that, is you're giving an instruction to the neural network of things to avoid putting in a generated image. So you might say, I want a numbat, but I don't want a log, and it will come up with a way of not having the log with your numbat. Next up, Michael Ruas has a new Kino plugin for working with Kubernetes pods. It's called Kino K8S Term. If you've ever wanted to have a live book open to console into your Kubernetes and even collaborate on that session, now you can. So for those of you using Kubernetes, this may or may not be a fun thing to play with. All right, next up, Livebook has added two new neural network tasks to the Bumblebee integration. The two new ones are token classification and fill mask tasks. Check out the show notes for the link to the tweet. That includes a short demo because these kind of things, you kind of have to have a demo to see what these things do. <laughs> but token classification identifies the person, place, organization, or other like you know proper pronouns. And fill mask can kind of fill in the blank. Like an example statement is, Elixir is a blank programming language and it fills in functional the word functional there. So that's those two quick examples of what those little neural networks can do. I say little, but they're probably huge. But anyway, <laughs> little examples of what those uh, two neural networks can do. So kind of cool. And next up, RR on Twitter was experimenting with getting Dreambooth style features in Livebook's stable diffusion example. So he got it running in Livebook, generated the code, and then reworked it so it wasn't using the NX serving pipeline. And what that meant is it enabled full control over each part of the process, and he used that additional control to render intermediate results during image generation. It's like watching the stable diffusion go from static in multiple iterations to a clearer and clearer picture of the thing that it's resolving to. So that's just kind of a, a fun little way of showing how you can customize and play with all of that just in Livebook. Frederick Teschke wrote a blog post using Livebook to visualize Dijkstra's algorithm for finding the shortest path between two nodes in a graph. And what's really neat is you'll have to check out the GIF that he posted on Twitter or check out his blog post. He actually uses Vega Light to visualize how it works as well. So that's pretty cool. I love that visualization pathfinding. It's just interesting to see how that works. All right, next up is uh, Notes Club, notes.club. 
It's a website by Heck Perez that makes it easy to share and discover live books, live book notebooks online. I think what they're doing is is just using the, the GitHub API and looking for like a file type, live MD. I don't know. It's a total guess, but it is scanning all of GitHub and it just gives you the latest list of like notebooks that are out there that you can explore. So if you're looking for, you know, examples rather than searching GitHub yourself, this is a pretty cool resource. A lot of folks, you know, sharing Advent of Code stuff right now. So if you need uh, another set of, you know, examples while you're doing your Advent of Code, that's a nice resource. Go check it out. It's notes.club. And in Gleam news, Louis Pilfold, the creator and maintainer of Gleam, and Gleam is a Beam-based statically typed programming language. Well, Louis announced his last full day at Nomeo, where he's been working, and he is now working full-time on Gleam. This is credited to the Gleam sponsors, which are making it possible for him to go full-time on this, of which he credits Fly.io as being his number one sponsor. And he requests additional sponsors as he took a significant pay cut to do this full-time, like one-third of his normal like previous pay. But it's something that he's really excited about and wants to push forward with. So if you are interested in Gleam and what Louis is doing, consider supporting his continued work. Yes, he also mentioned that Bumblebee, NX, and Axon all work in Gleam thanks to the new Elixir support in Gleam. So that's really interesting. Kip Cole has a library called Image. We've talked about it before. We talked about it back when he added the the meme function, which is <laughs> it's just right up my alley. <laughs> Reminder of what that does. You you give it an image and then you give it a t- some text and it just stamps the text on there like, like, a, like a meme. Anyway, so he's jumped into action with Bumblebee and has added a new function called image.classification.classify. If you are looking for a simple way to go classify an image, you have your image, you go get your, your image dependency there. That's one function. Like, how can it get easier than that? So thanks to Kip Cole for keeping things fresh. I'm loving it. And last up, Codebeam Lite in Stockholm 2023 is coming up and it's been announced. And right now the conference will be held in the 12th of May in 2023 in Stockholm, Sweden. And currently they have the call for speakers, which will be open until February 5th. So check that out. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. They make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Michael Lubis. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back on. It's great to be here. Yes, you were with us back in episode 93, which was a great time because we talked about preventing service abuse and you showed us how we could use plug and plug attack to thwart brute force attacks and stuff like that, which is really cool. So we wanted to have you come back and talk about other ways that we can secure our Elixir applications, resources that'll be helpful for us, cross-site scripting stuff. Some of the things I think is interesting is understanding what does this look like? How do I recognize when I have this problem in my application? So I'm excited you could join us with this to revisit some of these important topics around security. But before we jump into all that, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? So I live in New York. I've been here for a few years. And... Previously to starting work with Elixir, I kind of come from an InfoSec background. 
So working in web application security, dealing with attacks against them. And I learned Elixir a few years ago, which was really a great experience. And I wish more security people would really know about the language because there's so many problems you run into in security. And the, the typical language people know is, is Python or JavaScript or C, but Elixir's design for concurrency and how it works is so much better than a lot of the, the tooling you see more in infosec circles. So that's what I found was so fantastic about the language. Oh, that makes sense. So you're just talking about like, so the, the tooling that they're using at infosec projects and companies, a lot of it is using some of those things like Python. That totally makes sense. I, I can totally see that. But then, yeah, you would have scalability issues per, potentially when you're wanting to deploy this at some kind of scale, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's very common. It's it's really because people just know Python. There's not a lot of people in security talking about Elixir, although it seems like that is changing. So for a bit more background, I'm also part of the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation's security working group. So this is a group of people who are interested in not only the security of Elixir, Erlang, and the Beam, but also the broader ecosystem of you know, how does security apply to, to people's projects? I'm also the founder of Praxial.io, which makes a product that replaces reCAPTCHA or Cloudflare's bot defense product. It's for stopping attacks against Elixir applications. And the company also offers security consulting now that's focused in Elixir. So my perspective on things is, is a bit security focused because I viewed the Elixir ecosystem as, you know, there's all these fantastic work going on. You know, what, what about security? What can be done in that area as well? Well, great. Well, I'd love to jump into this now because there were a couple blog posts that you had recently that got my attention. So one of them, I'd mentioned it before, we talked about in the news and it was the securing Elixir and Phoenix applications, five tips to get started. There's a lot of great tips, but two great CI checks that I really liked. One was mixed audit being a library. I learned about that from your post. And then I also learned about the built-in mix hex.audit, which is already available built into the, the mix tooling. And I learned about them from your post. So it's like, I, I really appreciate that you're talking about these things that you're seeing just as general Elixir security advice. And it's very surprising to see that there's people like you, you're very experienced in Elixir. I, I think you've been using language for years, but there's not really a good source of information for all of all of these things. Like, you know, that's seemed really relevant to your work, but there's not a book or really a good resource for a Phoenix project. That is changing. That may be changing soon in the future. There's some there's some work from the working group that's coming out. But the blog post I wrote was more of a getting started. So you have a Phoenix application, you care about security because it's probably handling customer data and it's on the public internet, so it's getting attacked. Where do you start securing it? So Michael, I totally agree with what you're saying because I think a lot of times as developers, you know, my perspective is how do I get, how do I make this work? I want to take advantage of this new live view feature. I want to fix this problem. I want to add this feature and like I'm trying to make my app work. And that's the perspective I come at it from. We have to take a separate special look to think about the security of it. And that's what I liked about this post. So why don't we go through a few of these items on your post? Because several of them were new to me, like the top one, read the EEF's secure coding and development hardening guidelines. I didn't even know this was available as a resource. 
So maybe you can talk about this. And so this is from the Erling Ecosystem Foundation Security Working Group, which you said you're a member of, but I didn't even know this, this guideline existed. So I would love to hear about this and like, what can we find there? Why, why should I check this out? Yeah. So the working group has, you know, some of the smartest people really in Elixir for security work. So I love going out and talking about this work because sometimes people don't know about it, but it's such a fantastic resource. So the hardening guidelines, this specific document is around coding in Elixir and Erlang. So it's not specific to Phoenix really, but it has a lot of great information. So one common example that I love to bring up is the atom exhaustion problem in the beam where atoms are not garbage collected. So if you have you know, an API endpoint in Phoenix and somebody's running a dumb fuzzer, which the internet is full of, people just sending spam to your application and it gets in a loop where every new HTTP request results in an atom being created, that can be a denial of service against your application. So reading this document is very important because it gives you this foundation of what the edges and gotchas are in Elixir and how you can use that to inform your whole security strategy for your application. So there's some specific things that I want to bring up out of this because, again, it's new to me. I've, I've been doing this for years. Like, for example, protecting sensitive data is, is in this guide, and it's on the erlf.github.io site. For protecting sensitive data. So like I know about like like an ecto, there is a redact true option for like a certain field and that's going in and out of the database. So like and the way that that works, I think, is by doing something with the inspect protocol. I suspect I don't know. And I know about the inspect protocol for like structs, but there's some but there's a couple of things here I didn't know about. Like implement the format status callback for a gen server. No idea that existed. <laughs> There is a private option for ETS tables. I think I knew that one existed. But here, here's another one. Flag the current process as sensitive using the Erlang.processFlag sensitive true. No idea that existed. <laughs> Tell me about like, and I know that we can find examples for days, but like, are there some easy examples that like where, where this can help? What is it like? I can share one example where I saw this as a problem. This little piece that we're talking about here is protecting sensitive data. So I had a problem where when a process would crash, it would log a lot of the state of the process, which included database credentials that end up going into the logs, right? You didn't want that. So like that was an earlier version. <laughs> <laughs> that was an earlier version, right, of, of uh, Elixir and some of the things that we were doing around. But like that's, that's an example of this where you might have stuff that is sensitive and it just ends up in your logs accidentally, because you weren't actively careful about it. And there's like, that's what I love about this. It's like, oh, you can do something about that. That's a fantastic example. And I'm sure listeners of this show probably have dealt with a similar situation. So I could see them reading this document and, and getting that same kind of spark. So if nothing else, I think the fact that you point out that this resource exists as something that I, I know we'll want to dig in in the future and talk more about some of these topics as well. But I just appreciate that this was created by the, the foundation and this is a resource that's available to us. And now uh, hopefully more people will know about it so we can start using and applying it. I should mention I was not part of the working group when this document was published. You know, the credit goes to the, the actual authors of, of this, but it is absolutely fantastic. 
Well, let's move on to the next one in your article, because what I like about your article is, as you mentioned, it's a great resource for getting started. It's the, how do I step into this? So the next one you talked about, Sobelo, for checking vulnerabilities. If people haven't heard about Sobelo before, why don't you give us a little intro to what that is? Yes. So Sobelo is a static analysis tool that's focused on the security of Phoenix. Static analysis means that it just looks at the source code. You're not running your application, but it's analyzing what is the Elixir source and then using that information to tell you if you have security problems. So the creator, uh, Griffin, also gave a really excellent talk at ElixirConf 2017 about his experiences finding vulnerabilities in Phoenix applications. So I recommend watching the talk as well. But what's fantastic about Soblo is you install it in your mix file, you just run a command, and it tells you all of these really common vulnerabilities that are likely to affect the security of your application. And that's it. It's a command line tool. It's integrated into the development environment the listeners of this show are familiar with. And if you're not using it, but you have an Elixir application with customer data, it's very highly recommended. It's the first thing I would do in terms of installing additional software in your project. Yes, I totally recommend people use Sobelo for their CI checks. Yeah, just like automated stuff. And that's one of the things that, like you talked about the atom exhaustion vulnerability where it's a denial of service attack. I know Sobelo makes an effort to try and detect those from multiple different ways of causing that problem. So it's a great resource to just be part of the CI checks because when you have a a whole team of people and they're all committing code and you have some junior and mid-level and senior people, you can let the tooling help teach those types of things too because we can't, even when we're reviewing each other's code, we can't catch everything all the time. Let's move on to the next one, which was the mix audit because... This one, I also, so like this is one I mentioned that uh, another CI check, awesome addition. And I learned about it from your article as well. So why don't you tell us what this one does? Mix audit provides you a mix task to scan your dependencies for known security vulnerabilities. There's often questions about what the difference between mix audit is versus mix hex audit. So I'm just going to quote the, uh, the mix audit documentation. So the mix hex audit task shows dependencies that have been marked as retired, meaning they're just not receiving updates, but that does not mean that they have a vulnerability. Mix audits task is similar to NPM audit or bundler audit, and that's finding dependencies that have security vulnerabilities. So that's the, the difference between the two. So, Michael, I bet you know a lot about the next one here, hardening your application against bot attacks. So, (laughs) let me open this up. If your application's on the public internet, which most are, (laughs) you got to be aware that there's some, I I get this all the time in my, in my like exception alerts, and I have to ignore so many of them, but there's like, there are folks out there or programs out there that will just constantly scan for like what routes are available on your application for common vulnerabilities. So like, for example, I've got this Phoenix application up and running, but somebody's trying to go to wp-admin and log in.php, whatever. And they're, they're just looking, they're, they're just sniffing. Is there something, something, something bad around here? There's a lot of that stuff happening. And I have a feeling that you are an expert on this. Tell me about hardening my application against bot attacks and what, what you've done about this. <laughs> yes. 
The reason I put this on the list is because it's very common for people to have pen tests done, examine their application for vulnerable dependencies and OWASP type vulnerabilities, and you're 100% on those, you're completely good and compliant. And then one day you wake up to a security incident because somebody wrote a bot to run login attempts on your login form. And that was marked as an informational finding on the pen test because it's not that interesting of a vulnerability compared to cross-site scripting, but it often leads to a real incident. So the reason this is close to me is because Praxial.io was created to solve this problem. Common other examples are reCAPTCHA is a very common thing that is used to prevent this. Unfortunately, it's not a good solution because of a number of reasons. Users are extremely frustrated with reCAPTCHA. It's horrible for usability and accessibility. Also, if you're a business and you're relying on your conversion rate to make money and real users are not signing up because of reCAPTCHA, that's horrible for your bottom line. Also, it doesn't work very well as a security control. You can pay people, it's the market rate is about a dollar per 1,000 solves, and you can outsource it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's it? There's a whole industry around this. I had no idea it was so cheap. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. And it's a real person doing this work, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's sad that CAPTCHA is so common, and sometimes it's even recommended by payment processors. But think about purchases you make on major tech websites or major retailers. They'd be insane to put a CAPTCHA in front of you when you're trying to give them money. So for this portion, I, I do want to mention the, the CAPTCHA problem. There's also open source tooling available. Uh, there was a great article from Tyler Young published on the Felt blog called Rate Limiting Algorithms for Client-Facing Web Apps. And he implemented a very good strategy for preventing things like this, all with open source software as well. So... This is a very important thing to think about for your application. Yeah, and that's just login form, you know, credentials stuffing stuff, right? And and rate limiting. But there's other things here too, like, okay, well, I guess it's related to credential stuffing. But one of the one of the strategies there, at least when it comes to like Ecto, and and this is part of the Phoenix Gen auth generators, is this will take care of it, I think. But there is a function that will frustrate timing attacks and those timing attacks are a, a way for these bots to figure out which which login is well like which email address or whatever is valid and even if they get the password wrong based on the the amount of time that the web request came back was it faster or slower right if it was slower it probably found an email address if it was faster the email address probably didn't exist and so one of the th strategies for frustrating that attack is is to always be slow <laughs> just to or, or randomize the way that uh checking you know passwords even if you can't find like the email address or the user in your in your database right so that way all guesses are equally slow not <laughs> anyway that's one one thing but there, there's a lot of ways to harden your application you know against bot attacks so i'm glad that like paraxial exists because well, you, you said it earlier, so I'll come back to it. You wrote a getting started guide, which is what we're going off of here. This is a getting started guide. And these are essential for folks that just don't know where to start, right? That's, that's, that's the point of it, getting started, right? I, I don't even know where to start on this stuff. 
And like, I can think about like specific strategies, but I can't, I don't know where to start on all the other things that are happening, you know, out there, all the other strategies. I, I think that's the value that um, Praxial and, and these other, you know, libraries that we're talking about helps us achieve is that we don't have to necessarily know all that stuff if we're able to trust uh, programs and, and applications like Praxial. So all that to say, thank you for, for, <laughs> for writing this and starting Praxial. So David, you, you mentioned this idea of, you know, looking at your logs and seeing all of the PHP endpoints that something is like probing for. Yeah. I've heard it called like uh, background internet radiation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like it. Which makes sense. But when it, like when you talk about like these uh, bots that are created for stuffing stuff, <laughs> for stuffing logins and signups, I was really surprised when I put up a service, a site of my own, where I had nothing on the marketing page. There was no, re- and I told nobody about it. There was no reason anyone should ever go to it and sign up, right? And yet I had like 10 or 15 signups. And like, there was nothing they could do when they got in, but it's like, it didn't stop bots from trying it. It's like, oh, here's a standard signup form with a name and email address. And it's like, it just, they just did it. Just stupid bots, you know? <laughs> or smart. Are they smart? They got through. <laughs> exactly. And they're just like, once I get in, then I can start probing for problems. And then maybe there's customer data that I can probably get at, you know, it's just automated stuff. So like, yeah, it is valuable to spend a little time to say, what can we do to protect our data and our users? Because it's our users' data that we have custody of. We're the, the guardians of that. All right. So rounding out your article, Michael, is the safe URL library to stop SSRF attacks. All right. There's two things here I want to talk about to start with. The InfoSec world loves their acronyms. <laughs> Why? Why so many acronyms? What is SSRF? Like people knew about this for a while, but then somebody names it. I don't know who names it or there's a consensus. So the term acronym server-side request forgery or SSRF, I'll give an example because it's sort of easier to, to explain that way. So imagine you have a chat application that you're creating and you want the functionality that Slack has where you put in a URL to a blog post and then an image pops up with some text and you get a nice preview in your chat window. So to build that, kind of imagine, okay, take the URL, you have to make an outbound HTTP request. There's a protocol for how that's done. And then you put the image and all the data back in the chat window. So that's what we're working with. That's why we're taking user input as a URL. Now consider in modern cloud environments, there's usually a special IP address that you can send a request to and it will return your private keys. That's That exists in many cloud providers' environments. That sounds dangerous. So you can see how, how this vulnerability came around. Is It was partially due to the rise of that. So now you're taking user input, sending the request, but it's malicious, and then it returns your server's private keys back in that chat window. So that's the problem that we're dealing with here, uh, SSRF. So the engineers at Slab released an open source library in Elixir, which was very exciting for me to see, called SafeURL, which looks at the user input and determines if it's malicious. So they use it at Slab, I believe it would make sense. So, and they have to deal with untrusted user input. So 
it's very nice that they've open sourced it and the whole community can really benefit from this. And I wanted to mention it in this article because I think it's a great, a great tool to be using. If people didn't know that Slab is written in Elixir, then yes, it, it is. It's very cool. It, uh, we use it at work and it has like collaborative editing and everything like you'd expect with a, an awesome Elixir app with WebSockets, even though it's not uh, live view. But yeah, so I'm grateful that they made this library available as well. And anything that can help validate and protect what URLs are valid. Because I didn't even know about that vulnerability existing on cloud-hosted systems. Gotcha. So so the, the way that this is working, safe URL is by default blocking everything. And you just have to allow list things in there. And so like, for, for example... You probably don't want to hit internal servers, <laughs> you know, with user trust. Exactly. With, with yeah, so you, so you block everything, and then you only allow like uh, hits to Google, hits to you know Facebook, whatever you know, uh, hits to t- Twitter. You know, just a known list of things. Or even better, as part of the configuration, it's not like specific like strings like Google.com or something, but it's also cider ranges. Now I love me some cider, but this is some IP address notation for what IP addresses are, are available. So google.com translates into some IP address and uh, they own a block of IP addresses. So CIDR is the way to say all the IP addresses like in this area, <laughs> like like 192.1, which is probably your local stuff, right? And then any any IP from there, that's that's your local dot whatever, that's, that's your, your local part as long as it's the 192.1, it just starts there. So there's a way to notate that, and that's that's the CIDR notation there. Yeah, that's a good point, though, that you can't just trust the URL, right? If it's if they do an IP address intentionally to avoid that. And then there's schemes, too. I mean, generally, the world is on HTTPS, and you should just, just do that now and frustrate everyone that wants to use the old broken stuff of HTTP. Or, you know, FTP. Or FTP. Yeah. There's probably, it's like, isn't there a gopher protocol too? Uh, <laughs> anyway, there's old stuff. A te- telnet. You can do telnet. But we wanted to talk about one more before we let you go. We're running out of time. But this is a good one. It's the cross-site scripting patterns that you have in a post that you put out. What I think is great about this is it's one thing to talk about, like, the academic idea of, or the theoretical, like, this is cross-site scripting, and this is how it works, and and this is how people take advantage of it. But Really what's helpful is seeing code, like Elixir code that says this is this is a problem. This is how this can be abused. And that's something that I can now look at in my own projects and think about. So I want to touch on this as a resource and make sure people are aware of it. But why don't you walk us through how this works? It begins with this example of the raw function in Phoenix, where if you have some untrusted user input, so somebody is trying to do a cross-site scripting attack on your Phoenix application, it's very hard to actually make your application vulnerable in the sense people usually don't use raw. And when they do, they generally read the documentation and, and think it through. It was Griffin's ElixirConf talk. He said he never actually seen somebody call the raw function and introduce uh, vulnerability in all of his work. So that's the first example. What is really interesting, though, is in file uploads, which is an under-discussed vector for cross-site scripting, but it's what I implemented in this blog post. So in the blog post, the focus that you should be thinking about is in the content type of the response that's coming back from the server. So 
in many insecure implementations, if you allow users to set the content type of what they're uploading, you know, you're expecting a JPEG or, a, you know, for a user profile image, but somebody uploads an HTML document. And then when the image gets rendered back, it's not rendered as an image, it's actually a piece of HTML. And that's how the cross-site scripting problem gets introduced. If you're not very familiar with cross-site scripting, the general idea is when you visit a website, you know, google.com or something, you don't want JavaScript from another website or JavaScript that was controlled by an attacker to be loaded on that page because it can be used to steal your information. So the vulnerability described here is an attacker is on a website with profile upload photos and they upload their malicious example, which would be a HTML document. Then other people get that rendered in their browser. And as soon as that happens, their session has can be stolen by the attacker or it can be taken over to spread a worm or something. This, this actually happened to MySpace several, many years ago. It's, it's not as common now. It was called the Sammy worm, where MySpace was completely taken over by this cross-site scripting worm. And it led to a lot of problems for them, but it also raised awareness that this is a common computer security problem. I miss Tom sometimes from <laughs> MySpace. Anyway, <laughs> that's pretty interesting. It's really helpful seeing Elixir code demonstrating the problem. And it's fantastic for Paraxial as a company to be able to publish on this topic where there's so many good resources online for learning about information security. None of them are in Elixir. So right. being able to engage with the community, <laughs> learn about people's experiences, help them through content like this, it's fantastic for, for everyone involved. Well, that's great. We just covered two posts of yours, but you have quite a few more and you're you know presumably continually writing more and creating new posts. Hey, you mentioned the OWASP a little while back, so I got to throw a little mention out. Holden Allett, who's writing the OWASP livebook guide for Elixir applications for, for Podium. So that's very, very related. So I would put that live book right next to the, you know, the ERLF's, um, every time I say ERLF, I'm like, is that the right way? Should I, is that right? <laughs> People know what I'm talking about. I don't know. The Erlang Ecosystem Foundation's, you know, guide to uh, secure coding and deployment hardening. So that's, those are two very valuable pieces of reference material. Okay. And then you also mentioned the safe URL. You also got uh, your post on the cross-site scripting, which, which I'm getting out of that is don't use raw <laughs> when you do you open yourself up and <laughs> so don't use it I, I will say i i use it sometimes when i'm doing markdown you know that you're generating markdown and it's generating html tags and you need it to be output as html tags you know so like that might be one place where people if we're not careful about the stuff that's actually being rendered it, as markdown you know maybe there's a, a potential issue there yeah, Markdown does allow for HTML. Like you can throw regular HTML in there. And I think by default, it will, the spec is supposed to render it. But I think a lot of libraries will actually default to not not do that. <laughs> you have to opt into it. And I don't know what Earmark, which is the popular Elixir Markdown parsing library is. I don't remember what they're doing, but I suspect that they're only allowing a subset. Since we're talking about that, there's another library we should throw out there that's helpful for, for that situation. If you have HTML that you're coming in somewhere in your deployment or in your, in your workflow, there is a way to strip tags because there, there are 
you know, inherently unsafe tags in there. Obviously, you don't want to take a script tag that's in HTML because that would be just any regular old JavaScript that can go in there. And there's even other ones too, like in CSS, you could get a style attribute and then there's CSS in there. And that CSS might have a hit to an external URL. And that URL just being hit is like enough for an attacker to, to find out some piece of info. And so there is a, a library called uh, HTML Sanitize X. <laughs> so I'll throw a link for the for the folks in the that read the show notes. But HTML Sanitize X has a couple of like templates of what HTML is is allowed to be be rendered, and it'll it'll, it'll strip the rest of it out. So like strip tags will strip all of it out. So it's just te- it's just text. Then you got basic HTML, which is like your headers, your bolds, that stuff, but nothing else. Then you've got Markdown HTML, so you should use that, Mark. And then you also have like HTML5, and there's other other stuff. But that's a good tool for getting some of those potentially harmful <laughs> HTML things out of there. I feel like we've talked a lot, Mark. <laughs> is there something that we didn't cover, Michael, that you want to talk about? Yeah, I think we covered a lot of the main topics of the article. And thank you for going over it with with me. I think this is really useful for the listeners as well. If people want to find out more about what Paraxial does, the services that you offer there, where do they go to do that? Yeah, so we have our homepage and the blog, which will naturally be linked in the show notes. Also, if you just want to contact me and ask about what does Paraxial do or how do the consulting services work, just send me an email. It's michael at Paraxial.io. You know, we're also on Twitter, LinkedIn. Oh, I want to shout out uh, Gen Server Social, Praxial. I think I saw you guys on there uh, too as well. Indeed, yes. And we'll, I see that you have that and we'll include that in the show notes. Well, thank you, Michael, for joining us and, and visiting with us again about a lot of the different resources that are available to us in the Beam ecosystem, in particularly for Elixir and Phoenix, that a lot of us may not be aware of or just have resources that are good to familiarize ourselves with and to get a little bit more of that security perspective. So I appreciate your writing and helping to educate people. Thanks for having me on the show. It was great talking to you guys again. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.